All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another opportunity, the privilege to gather together as your children who you've adopted and to learn your word and your plan in this, the devil's world that we live in. We ask, Father, that you enlighten us this morning, that your spirit open our eyes to what we need to see, and that your spirit guide the speaker as well so that your message comes forth. We know you have something planned just for this day while it's still called today. Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your son out of heaven to become a man, to become our substitute once for all on the cross so that those who trust in him do not have to be judged. We are eternally grateful for that gift, Father, and for your Son. Please bless this morning's message in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. Salvation slash deliverance is from our Creator slash Redeemer. Uh, this is part four in this series that started last Sunday, and uh, hopefully you've listened to all the messages so far to get the whole theme and, and where God is going with this. Um, I want to say, you know, something came to my mind before service, and that is that we should bask in the glory of the Word of God. Like whether we're reading it privately in our alone time with God or, or in class together as a unit, studying the Word and what the Spirit has to say, our attitude should be one of basking in the glory of the Word. And, and think of, on this cold day, how nice it is to bask in the sun when it's like 75 and totally sunny, and you get to lay there and close your eyes and allow the sun to refresh you, right, and nourish you. And that type of attitude and feeling is what, you know, came to my mind this morning about the Word, because that's what it's there for, and that's what it does if we're humble enough to open ourselves to that and receive, you know. So just like if another analogy is water washing over you, right? That's really what the, wa- the word is. It's called water, and it washes over us and cleanses us each and every day. So let's um, make sure we have the proper attitude as we go into this morning and see what God has for us. We spent a lot of time last week seeing the importance of acknowledging God as the creator. In fact, it's a part of the fullness of the gospel as we've been studying And that includes repentance towards God, a repentant heart towards God. Our main passage, which brings about acknowledgement of both the Creator and the Redeemer, has been Acts chapter 20, verse 21. So let's turn to Acts 20 first and start there. And this is... uh, This verse is a good reflection of the title of the message. Salvation, deliverance is from our Creator, Redeemer. Acts 20, 21. Paul says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's pattern when giving the gospel to any man. Jew or Greek. And it was the same pattern that the Lord Jesus used when he was on earth and the same pattern the other other apostles used. Repentance, an attitude of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the board, we saw this on Thursday in the Amplified Version. But constantly and earnestly, I bore testimony both to Jews and Greeks, urging them to turn in repentance that is due to God, and to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that is due Him. A good way to put it. Both have to be acknowledged. And it's two sides of the same coin, don't forget. Up to this point, we've been talking about man humbling himself before his Creator, both before and after the day of salvation. And we talked about humility from recognizing God's sovereignty. And for example, as you look into the sky on a clear, starry night, step back and fathom that our God and Creator spread out the infinite universe with His fingers. 
That's how easy it was for him. In Isaiah 40, verse 12. And that was after he created it all by just saying the word. In Genesis 1, in Psalm 33, 6 and 9, and in Psalm 148, verse 5. Just to name a few. But allow the creation and the awesomeness of creation creation to change you every day. Allow it to humble you every day. But that takes you stepping back and looking at things for what they are as his awesome creation. We're not going to go to all these passages today, but on the board, uh, Psalm 33, verses 8 through 9, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. There it is again. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Because he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. There again we see the appropriate fear and awe due to our God and Creator. When we have that in humility, we can then grow into sanctification by His grace. So awe and respect for our Creator is essential in surrendering to Him as Redeemer as well. In fact, they're two sides of the same coin. And they're the same God just in different roles. Our our God and Creator wants to save us from sin and deliver us to righteousness. And in fact, that's what Christ did for us on the cross. As our Redeemer, He died for sin and He rose from the dead for our righteousness in Romans 4.25. His death and resurrection were literally deliverance from sin to righteousness. What happened on on the cross and, and, and the next three days when he rose, that literally was the turning point in all our lives because sin was defeated, but he had to receive the judgment first, of course, and then righteousness became alive forever, forevermore, in perfection, because sin was defeated. And that's why Romans 4.25 is such a neat verse. I put it on the board for you today. He, talking about Jesus, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions or sins, he was raised because of our justification. He was raised from the dead because of our justification to justify us, to declare us righteous if we believe. So there we see the coin flipping in the Lord's life, if you will. He became a sin offering on our behalf, even though he was without sin. He took our judgment upon himself, and then he rose from the dead three days later in perfect righteousness, forever and ever, in a new form, and in an eternal form that we can partake in if we trust in what he did. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's see this beautiful verse one more time. And this, this verse is a good illustration of that, the flipping of the coin, if you will. From sin to righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What was Romans 4.25 saying? He was raised for our justification. What is justification? It's being declared righteous, being declared justified before a holy and righteous God. So he was raised because of our justification. And he took sin upon himself so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. On the board... We are saved from sin and delivered to righteousness. We've been saved and sanctified as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues to perform a good work in those who believe. Again, they're one thing in God's eyes. You know, being saved means you're sanctified. And not only are you already sanctified, but you're going to continue being sanctified if you're saved. And they're one 
congruous, that's the right word, thing that is inseparable, you know, in God's eyes. And it's just the facts of life for the true believer. So again, we're saved from sin and delivered to righteousness. We've been saved and sanctified as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues to perform a good work in those who believe. But until one acknowledges God as his creator, he's stuck in deception. Until one recognizes his guilt before a holy and righteous God, he will not humbly turn to Christ for redemption. It's not possible, at least not from the heart. There are many people that grew up in church and quote-unquote believe in Christ because that's what they were taught. But they never believed in their heart for him as Lord and Savior. Not everybody. I'm just saying they exist. And I worry about children, too, because children, we assume they can be saved. We assume they are saved if they're growing up in church. But they still have to come to a point where they have their own faith and trust in the Lord. Right? Because they grew up in a certain denomination and they can say, I'm this or I'm that, that doesn't really mean, that doesn't mean salvation. Right? Every person's got to come to their own point of humility, where they first recognize God as creator, and secondly, humbly turn to Christ as the redeemer. And we covered Romans 1 on Thursday a little bit, because it talks about God consciousness. And that's really the first step in the conversion process. If one doesn't even believe in or acknowledge God as his creator, which is the word used in Romans 1, There's nowhere they can go from there. Humility is not there. There's no good soil in which the fruit of righteousness can grow. So that's the first step, literally. The conversion process begins with repentance towards God, the Creator, admitting one's sinfulness before Him. And in sharing the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is essential as we've been seeing in our studies. This is very important to not skip over with people and just go straight to believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Many people out there, more than I think we realize, don't know what they're being saved from or what they need to be saved from. And you assume because someone grew up in a certain church or denomination that they know. I see it over and over. I've seen it a couple times uh, recently, this week even. That people that, because they said they were Christian or grew up in a certain way, I had a certain thought about them in my head that they're at this place already, and they weren't where I thought they were. And I had to, like, backtrack and go back to simple things like the Creator. You know? Go to Romans 1. Let's just read this again, which is a sad description of where the unbeliever is who still hasn't even come to the point that God is the Creator. Let's start Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Think about that. Taking away the credit from God as creator and giving it to something else, some theory. And I believe, I mean, verse 22, for example, is a prediction written 2,000 years ago about the folly of the theory of evolution. And um, we, I, I met with someone today in my own family who is trapped in this thing. 
and doesn't believe in God, or God exists because of all the quote-unquote evidence of evolution and all the stuff that's unexplainable and blah, blah, blah. So he's trapped right now. He's in deception. He's just this exact description. As I was reading this verse this morning, from verse 18 to 23, I was like, oh, my God, every sentence matches how this person in my family thinks. So I guess it's the Word of God, huh? But God is so patient, though, and keep this in mind to encourage you. Only God can change the heart of man. Only God can change the heart of any man. We are not to try to persuade people. We can be used to be the messenger and give people the truth and just say, hey, it's between you and God. Because you know what? It is, and you're never going to persuade them. Only God can get to their heart. Only God knows where to pluck the nerve at the right time so that they open their eyes and see. So make sure you leave it in his hands as you confront people like this. Do your job as a messenger, but pressure's not on you. It's the Lord's job, and only he can do it. Look at Romans 1.28 while you're in this chapter. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So there we see the acknowledgement of God. If someone at least acknowledges that there is a God and he probably did create everything, that's a big step. If they don't, at least if they don't know who Christ is yet or they're not sure if he's a true, whatever, right? You see what I'm saying? There's two sides to the coin, and repentance towards God, the Creator, has to come first, or there's no need to trust from the heart in Christ to save, you know, for, for the Redeemer, for redemption. There's no need, because you don't think you have a need. You don't think you need to repent before your holy and righteous God. So that's part of the salvation story, as we've been talking about, telling the full story. Fear of God, as we've been seeing, is a very good thing, even essential, both before and after the day of salvation. And we talked about this on Thursday on the board. We might think, because there's no fear in love, in 1 John 4.18, we might think we should not fear God. But no fear in love refers to having no fear in this world, because you know you are perfectly loved by God as a believer. So, again, we'll turn, turn to 1 John 4 as I read this again for you. I want to read this passage one more time, too. So, some people, including myself at times, uh, might think there's no fear in love. Why do I need to fear God anymore? Right? Like, I know He's for me, He's not against me, and I'm under grace. But the phrase, no fear in love, doesn't mean that we shouldn't fear God. No fear in love refers to having no fear in this world or in the things of the world. Because you know you're perfectly loved by God. That's what 1 John 4 is really all about. So look at 1 John 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There's the sphere of love that Pastor talks about, living in the sphere of love. Never forgetting that God is love, and if you abide in his love, he abides in you. There's this intense fellowship, there's this intense relationship going on when we abide in his love. And before we go on, just think of God's love as steady as the sun. You know how the sun is always shining, right? It's never not shining. Even when there's clouds or a storm and we can't see it from our perspective, human perspective, if we go above the clouds, the sun is always shining. It never, ever ceases in its power, in its warmth, in its love. So think of that as God's love. It, it's always, always, always perfectly, strongly beaming for believers in His Son. So in verse 17, By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. 
Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Notice that. Again, verse 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Notice it says it right after it says in this world, right? There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected or matured in love. If you and I fear the things in the world or the people in the world, we're not matured in love yet. And I think we can all raise our hand, I'm not there yet. But so what? That's okay. This is where he's taken us. This is the sanctification process. And if you think you're there, by the way, go meet an ISIS terrorist and be tested. See if you stand up to a person like that with no fear. Because if not, you're not mature yet. You're not mature in his love. So fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not matured in love yet. And that's okay. But that's where he's taken us. And there's no fear in love in this world. This is clarified in the scriptures when we're told to not fear man who can destroy the body only, but we should fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So in other words, who to fear? There is no fearing man if we know how fully we are loved by God. But the one we rightly fear is God himself, who has authority over life and death and eternal judgment. Luke 12, 4 through 5. As I said on Thursday, if some man or some terrorist or whatever you want it to be comes up to you and threatens you or even threatens to send you to hell, well, he doesn't have that authority. He could kill my body, but he doesn't have the authority to condemn me or judge me for eternity. Right? So why should we fear him? This life is temporary anyway, right? We've been talking about. Let's fear God, because he's the one with the authority and the power to do that thing. And thank God he doesn't do it for those who believe in his son, of course. But there's still an appropriate acknowledgement of who God is, even as believers. And our Lord said this to the disciples in Luke 12. So turn to Luke 12, verse 4. Let's see this again. Luke 12, 4. Our Lord Jesus himself instructed his disciples towards this proper fear of God and not forgetting who he is. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So again, I remind you, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, not a bunch of unbelievers. So on the board, I want to share a couple perspectives that I shared on Thursday. You can just uh, sit back and see what the Spirit gives you from these men of God. Adam Clark on Luke 12, 5, regarding the statement, fear him. Even the friends of God are commanded to fear God as a being who has authority to send both body and soul into hell. Therefore, it is proper even for the most holy persons. And remember, holy means sanctified, right? Set apart. That's what holy means. So even the most sanctified believer, even the most mature believer, it is appropriate or proper for them to maintain a fear of God as the punisher of all unrighteousness. A man has but one life to lose, and one soul to save. And it is madness to sacrifice the salvation of the soul to the preservation of the life. Another perspective on this verse from John Calvin, Christ must be viewed as saying that when we give way to the dread of men, we pay no respect to God. And that if, on the contrary, we fear God, we have an easy victory in our hands so that no efforts of men will draw us aside from our duty. 
Very well said. It's almost like one or the other. Am I going to fear man or am I going to fear God? And if I really understand and believe the love God has for me, I, don't, I have no need to fear man. But I should always keep fearing God because he's got the authority to do anything he wants. Thank God for his word. And he sticks to his word because he's perfect. But it's a choice who we fear, even as believers. Be on guard for uh, what your soul is doing or entertaining in terms of fear. And be uh, aware of the need to fear God. In Luke 12, Jesus goes on to tell the disciples, the very same disciples that he just said, fear God who can cast body and soul into hell. He goes on to tell them that they're more valuable than many sparrows to God. And that the very hairs of their head are all numbered. Illustrating his perfect love and care the Father has for them. But why such a harsh statement in verse 5? Why did the Lord tell this to his disciples? Who you would assume are already saved, at least most of them. Well, maybe it's this on the board. Don't forget the one you serve. Don't forget his power and authority. That reality will keep all of us humble and give us courage to serve him without hesitation, even in the face of the threats of man. So now as believers, we're being perfected in the love of God. And because we abide in him through the love of Christ, we can have confidence in the day of judgment, as John said. We should have confidence in the day of judgment. Because he's redeemed us and brought us to the other side, right? But let's not forget where we came from, nor the sovereignty of God. And even after the day of our salvation, we are called to keep an appropriate fear of God, our Creator. As we saw earlier this week in Philippians 2, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Very humbling verse, even if you don't fully understand it. We must remember our place and that our lives are temporary and totally, 100%, in his hands. As Pastor Collins has said quite often, you only come this way once. We only have one opportunity, folks. We have only one life to live. So what will we make of the rest of our days? Forget the past right now, because you can't go back. What will we make of the rest of our days? We talked about uh, Ananias and Sapphira, right? When God struck them dead, when they lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. We can live for ourselves like that and maybe be taken home early and not bring God all the glory that we could. Or we can live in fear of God and bring him maximum glory with this one chance we have called life. But it needs, it requires appropriate fear for God. And we saw from Pastor Collins last week the Holy Spirit brought up these verses, how we are to have fear for Christ and also fear for God. Ephesians 5.21 we saw, it says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Why should we have a fear of Christ? Doesn't he love us so much that he died for us? Isn't he good with us now that we believed in him? Yeah. Doesn't he treat us in grace? Absolutely. Yet we're told to live our lives in a proper fear and respect toward Christ. Simply just because of who he is. The God, the creator, the savior, and the redeemer. And if we lose sight of that, if we lose that fear of Christ, we're going to be uh, living in some type of arrogance. Some type of pride. Where we're not really humble before him and we won't, we're not able to be sanctified in the way that he wants to take us. Turn to Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Let's look at this one more time. I mean, if you want to have some fun and just do your own little concordance search, you know, look up words like fear God and see how many verses there are. It's really... I keep stumbling upon them. It's kind of funny as I'm reading the Bible or I'm reading the passage about something else, and then I see fear God in there. It's like everywhere. 
Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Again, this was stated by Solomon, the wisest man on the earth. He said, the conclusion, at the end of my life, I'm an old man now, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And that, if that doesn't make you, if that doesn't humble you, there's something wrong. Like your head's in the wrong place. The wisest and richest man on the earth, who God honored and blessed, said, this is the summary right here. Fear God and keep his commands. It applies to everybody, and every act will be judged one day. So on the board, the pattern remains the same. However you want to, whatever verse you go to, whatever uh, terminology is used in the Bible, the pattern is the same. It's fear God and live. Fear your Creator, turn to your Redeemer for true life. Repent and believe. Confess and press on. We're saved from sin and we're delivered to righteousness our whole lives even as believers, even as those that are saved, if we stay living in the gospel reality, then we experience it all every day. That's what God wants for us. So the pattern remains the same. It's that two sides of the coin thing. It's just in different terms. But it's acknowledge who God is and turn to Christ. Right? And that's how we continue to live our lives as believers too. So, as we get into uh, wrapping up this series, I want to remind you again, this title is Salvation, Deliverance is from the Creator, Redeemer. So, we're going to close out by transitioning from the Creator to the Redeemer today, even though there are two sides of the same God, really is what we're talking about. But let's see the Redeemer side of God, if you will. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Isaiah 44, 24. It's always fun to see certain terms in the Bible used interchangeably too, you know, for either describing God or interchangeably for God and Christ. But here we see a, a little transition for us in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things. There's the creator. So the Lord, your Redeemer, says, hey, let me remind you, I'm also the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Thank God he is both to us. Go to Isaiah chapter 48, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Interesting. Talking about sanctification, if you think about it, then your well-being would be like a river, flowing, strong, right? Your righteousness would be like the waves of the sea if you follow my commands. So on the board... You know, regarding this transition, the freedom which the Redeemer purchased for us includes an ongoing deliverance and the opportunity to live a life of righteousness, moving us from salvation to sanctification and eternal life. We're called to listen to our Redeemer, listen to His commands. And if we do that, we can be sanctified and set apart for him more fully in this life. But as we talked about on Thursday, 
you know, are you gonna, is he going to have to drag you kicking and screaming? Or, is he, or are you going to come along where he just can put his arm around you and lead you? Is it a pu push method or a pull method? Does God have to push you and, you know, make the rocks under your feet move? Or does, are you going to let God pull you in, reel you in, so to speak, right? Really, it's stubbornness and selfishness or submission. It's your choice. He's going to sanctify us either way, thank God. But guess what? It's going to be a lot more fun and enjoyable and bringing more glory to God if we humbly go along and see what he has for us. There's this freedom that he wants us to live in. So again, on the board, the freedom which the Redeemer purchased for us includes an ongoing deliverance. Every day he wants us to be delivered. He wants us to be free. He wants us to have joy and peace. But it's not going to happen without your humility and surrendering to his word. And he's also purchased for us the opportunity to live a life of righteousness, moving from salvation to sanctification all the time and eternal life. So now that our Redeemer has walked the earth and purchased our freedom once for all by his blood, we can follow him and live a life of freedom that he died for. It's an opportunity. Like, don't lose sight of that. Um, an opportunity means that you can either take advantage of it or you, or you don't have to. Right? An opportunity means your free will is involved. Look at Galatians 3, verse 11. And let's be reminded what the Redeemer did for us so that we could live by faith like a righteous man. In God's eyes, that's what a righteous man does. He lives by faith. A righteous man doesn't live by works. A righteous man has many beautiful works in his life because he lives by faith. God only accepts faith because it's all about him. It's not about you. And that's why Abraham is used so often in the New Testament as an example to us. Look at Galatians 3.11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What was the curse of the law? That we couldn't keep it perfectly, even though God demands that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. God wants to bless us with the blessings of Abraham. But it's only possible to, if living by faith. And let's not forget, the Redeemer took the law out of the way too. He fulfilled the law for us. And he took sin out of the way at the cross. So now we truly are set free. We, we've been purchased by him. So the righteous man, in God's eyes, is the one living by faith. And that's faith in the Redeemer. Faith in the one who saved us at the moment of salvation and the one who continues to save us as we live in the eternal life that he purchased for us. And the Greek word for redeemed in Galatians 3.13 is exagorazo. And notice it means to buy up, to ransom, which is a common definition, figuratively to rescue from loss, or improve opportunity. Again, there's two sides of the coin. In redemption, there's a movement going on. There's a deliverance from slavery to freedom. You know? There's a deliverance from the old life to the new. There's a rescue from the chains of sin. And there's an opportunity to now live without chains on. You still got to live. And there's no more chains. What are you going to do with it before we get to heaven? So redemption doesn't stop at ransom. It's the base definition. He purchased our freedom from slavery. But it doesn't stop there. It gives opportunity for a new life. 
and life is to be lived by faith in the Son of God. One-time opportunity for all of us here. I mean, life is like a dream, right? It goes by so fast. Right now, we're alive, we're here, we, you know, can see and touch and smell, and tomorrow we'll be gone like the vapor in James 4. Right? Every single one of us. So what are we going to do with our free hands, without the chains? Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. How about starting by conducting ourselves in fear of God? The one who can take us, take our life at any time. Again, it's like the Lord giving the minors, right? He's like, what will you do with this grace I'm giving you? What are you going to do? Here you go. I'm going to give you five hours. That's how short life really seems compared to eternity. That's what it is. I'm going to give you ten hours. Go get them. Do something good for me. If you love me, you'll do something good for me. Right? Look at 1 Peter 1.17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Where would we be without the resurrection? Nowhere, right? The coin wouldn't have flipped in our lives. There'd be no hope, as this passage tells us. But because our Redeemer was raised from the dead, we have an active faith and hope in God. We not only have salvation, but also an active deliverance and movement towards uh, sanctification which we can enjoy. He's making us pure, you see? Even when we're going reluctantly and we're sinning in areas that we, won't, we refuse to drop, He's making us pure. He's working out something in us. He's making us righteous and holy. And that's a joyous thing to see when you stop and look back, take a step back and take a look at your life occasionally. That should be a joyous thing to see, even though you still have battles. And when you see that there's something in your life that you've conquered or no longer bothers you, right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word in your soul. And that like, makes it all worth it, doesn't it? And if that's happening now in your life, imagine where you're going to be at the end if you stick with the plan. Again, on the board... Because our Redeemer was raised from the dead, we have an active faith and hope in God, as we just saw in verse 21. We not only have salvation, but we also have an active deliverance and movement towards sanctification that we can enjoy. Since you're in 1 Peter, uh, look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. Die to sin and live to righteousness. The coin has flipped if you're a believer. You have a new opportunity in front of you to be sanctified. And God's the one that does it, but it takes our faith. It takes faith to live as a righteous man in God's eyes. And when we have the faith, he does all the work. And he's like, live. Live in this righteousness. It's, It's awesome. It's beautiful. It'll change people in the world. Our Redeemer took us from sin and delivered us to this righteousness that we can now live in. And on the board, when we trust in him, he flips the coin in our life. And that is now the life we are called to, every one of us, a life of deliverance to righteousness. 
We see that in Romans 6, 18 through 23, and we just saw that in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Again, when we trust in him, he flips the coin in our life, and that is now the life we're called to, a life of deliverance to righteousness. Romans 6.18 And having been freed from sin, there's redemption, right? Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. There's our opportunity, everybody. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. You derive your benefit, or do you? I don't know. Depends if you want to take advantage of the opportunity. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. I mean, God's going to get it done either way, but you have a, a part in it that you can enjoy. And we can be at a certain place when we get to heaven that many believers won't be at because they, they kick against the plan to be sanctified. So again in verse 22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that passage, we can see the unity of salvation and sanctification. God will finish what he started, but at the same time, we do have the opportunity to maximize the freedom that he purchased for us, for the glory of the Redeemer, once for all. We saw in Romans 4.25 that he died for our sins and he was raised from the dead for our justification so that we could be declared innocent and righteous before God. Our Redeemer delivered us and he still delivers us. Deliverance is a movement by God in the lives of those who believe. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, our Redeemer has already delivered us, but He still delivers us. It's a continuous thing. It's one thing. Deliverance is a movement by God in the lives of those that believe in His Son. And once it started, it can't stop. It's like a boulder rolling down a hill. It just is what it is. It's going to keep going. <laughs> are you going to be pushing it, trying to hold the boulder up and slowing it down? Or are you going to hop on or attach a sled or something, you know? Like, you can make it easier or hard on yourself. You're going to get to the bottom of the hill either way. Look at first, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9. Paul wrote, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. From the day of salvation, our very life is being rescued from the pit each and every day. He saves us each and every single day. Go to Psalm 103, verse 2. The Redeemer is in the business of delivering. And he's not like a one-trick pony. 
excuse the expression. It's not just some one thing he did for you. All right, you're good. You're good. It's over. Congratulations. You're saved. He gives life, and he gives life abundantly. And he wants to see if we'll live in the righteousness. He gives us the opportunity while we're here. And he redeems our life from the pit every single day, if we turn to him. Psalm 103.2 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Notice it's in the present tense. He redeems your life from the pit. As the Redeemer, the Lord purchased our freedom from the slave market of sin. But the point is, he didn't stop there. What did he do? He set us free. He gave us a new life to live. It was for freedom that Christ set us free in Galatians 5.1. We can now live a life of deliverance, a life of righteousness by ongoing faith in the Redeemer. Our final passage today is going to be Psalm 34. Please go to Psalm 34. And it just so happens as I was looking up a particular verse in this psalm that this psalm is like the perfect summary of everything we've been talking about this week. So we're just going to read it. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, by faith, by the way, the righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Isn't that wonderful? How much of our lesson was in there? I probably have to read it more than once. And I challenge you to read that in your private time alone with God. Just read it again. I think that's the message he's been giving us. So in closing, our redemption through Christ is much like this story. There's a story about a man who went down to the slave block to buy a slave girl. As she looked at the rich man bidding on her, she figured he was another selfish man who was going to buy her and then abuse her. He won the bid, 
And as he was walking away with his new property, he said, young lady, you are free. She said, what does that mean? It means you are free, he said. Does that mean, she said, that I can say whatever I want to say? And the gentleman said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, she said, that I can be whatever I want to be? He said, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? He said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And the girl, with tears streaming down her face, said, then I will go with you.
close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for all you've done for us. We thank you for being our creator and giving us life. And then we also thank you for being our redeemer and giving us new life that is eternal. Help us live in the righteousness you're calling us to by faith each and every day. We thank you for your word, Father, and all the wisdom it offers us. Help us to receive the opportunity to be grateful at all times, to give thanks, and to have peace and joy that we can know who we are, we can know where we're going, and we know you have an awesome, righteous life planned for us. To your glory. If anyone's not listening to my voice or is listening to my voice right now, we ask that you consider who your creator really is and that you have been redeemed if you so choose to accept it. Repent that you are a sinner and that you need God to save you. It's between you and the Lord. But the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Father, please bless us all as we go on today. Help us continue in your word. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you.